Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. I have a returning guest, my friend, Dr. Paul Reeve. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you, Richard. It's an honor to be with you again. Um, Paul was on the podcast way back in episode 278, and um, he is now on the podcast to talk about a new book that's at Deseret Book. It's called Let's Talk About Race and the Priesthood, and um, it's just a terrific book. In fact, listeners, this is the first time I was almost late to start a podcast because I was consumed with one of the chapters of the book, and then I looked at the clock and I thought, oh no, we need to do a podcast about this book. Um, just a little bit about Paul. Paul W. Paul Reeve is the Simmons Chair of Mormon Studies in the Un- History Department at the University of Utah, where he re- teaches courses on Utah history, Mormon history, and the history of the U.S. West. His book, Religion of a Different Color, Race, and the Mormon Struggle for Whiteness, has received multiple awards, and that's what Podcast 278 was about, listeners. He is the project manager and general editor of a digital database, Century of Black Mormons, designed to identify all known people of Black African descent baptized in the faith between 1830 and 1930. This database is found at org. Paul and his wife, Beth, are the parents of six children. And I believe you got your PhD in history from the University of Utah, where you're at now. Yeah, that's correct. So um, I have just, I'm going to let Paul talk about this, but it's kind of a book that's talks about phase one is universal priesthood and temples where um, black Latter-day Saints had full access to the priesthood and temple. And then phase two, segregated priesthood and temples. And then phase three, and I love the way you've named this, a return to racial inclusivity. And if you're not familiar listeners with the Let's Talk About, it's a series, and maybe Paul will talk about this at Deseret Book. Um, Let's Talk About series includes small, approachable books on important Latter-day Saint topics. Each one is written by a trusted, faithful scholar who thoroughly explains the topic, including key issues to consider, designed for people who have sincere questions and are seeking answers. This series provides access to some of the best thinking in the church. And then Darius Gray, um, your friend and somebody I deeply admire and a really friend for the whole church, writes the forward. And Richard E. Turley Jr., former um, church history historian and recorder, writes church history. Church leaders have spoken boldly, unequivocally condemning racism, but some members still cling to false traditions of the past. In this slender volume, historian W. Paul Reeve shows how these traditions developed and why they should be thoroughly abandoned. So with that introduction, listeners, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Reeve. I'll probably call him Paul the rest of the podcast, um, just to talk about whatever he wants to talk about in this book. But I think one of the things he's particularly trying to do, Paul and I are both white, is lift the voices of Black Latter-day Saints, and you're particularly good at that, is using your privilege and your scholarly insights to bring voice to this wonderful group of people. So take it away, Paul. Yeah, well, thank you, Richard. 
I, I love that you started out by just attuning the listeners to the structure of the book, because if you know uh, people come away with just that new knowledge, um, I think uh, the book will be a success. Uh, simply the fact that a lot of Latter-day Saints uh, today even continue to think that the racial priesthood and temple restrictions were in place from the beginning. Uh, they, you know, originated with the church and existed until 1978. And what I hope people appreciate and what I love about, um, uh, you know, Deseret Book being willing to publish this is simply the fact that this is a historical um, study that traces the racial priesthood and temple restrictions over time. This is what historians pay attention to. We pay attention to change over time. And, you know, from the get-go, I said to Deseret Book, look, you have to understand this is how I have come to understand the racial priesthood and temple restrictions, that the first couple of decades, there were no restrictions. And in fact, that's what the evidence uh, points to. Um, and then we have, in fits and starts, the racial restrictions developing across the course of the 19th century um, and becoming solidified in place by the beginning of the 20th century. So then um, 1978 is not something new. It, in fact, returns us to our universal roots and reconciles us to our founding scriptures. I think that's a really important point uh, to make is just simply the fact that the racial restrictions themselves are in violation of uh, the founding doctrines of the faith. Um, and so uh, I simply structure the book that way and try to lay out the evidence, um, you know, in that manner. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the Let's Talk About series. Um, I like this series simply because um, it's pitched at a general Latter-day Saint audience, but they asked me as a scholar to include the same scholarly apparatus I would include, you know, if I were writing for an academic audience. In other words, what are the sources? Here are the footnotes. Um, it's documented, in other words. Um, and and people can, you know, look at the footnotes and um, see the primary sources that, that the um, evidence is based on. So that's sort of a basic overview and, and introduction to the book um, and thrilled that that Deseret book was willing to engage at this level um, uh, with this volume. And other, other volumes in the series are also uh, really nicely done. Why is it, a, we're kind of past 1978. So we're kind of back to where we were. Why is it important to talk about this or, or write about it? Can't we just move on? And um, I, I know sort of how you might answer that and how our Black Latter-day Saint friends might answer that. But answer, answer that for us, Paul. Yeah, well, so we have been called by President Nelson and President Oaks to root out racism in the last couple of years. Uh, I mean, if we've been paying attention at all to the leadership, uh, this has been a pretty consistent drumbeat over even the last 10 or 15 years and uh, only increased of late because of the increase in racism. Uh, so how do you root out racism if you're unwilling to examine its roots? 
And that's one of the points that I make in the conclusion, right? So I'm a historian. I think history is a part of the answer. Uh, Why not just move forward? Um, Well, because history has something to teach us. We have to be willing to look at what racism looked like in the past, to be able to understand it in the present, and to formulate a better future. Uh, How do we um, lead out in abandoning prejudice if we don't understand what it looked like in our own past? Uh, In in that case, I I see history as a moral guidebook of sorts. Um, It can help us to learn from the wisdom as well as the mistakes of the past and help us to chart a better future, but also a willingness to stand in places of empathy in the present, right? So um, in my estimation, we cannot do what we've been called to do by Latter-day Saint leaders without confessing the past, coming to terms with it, being open and honest about it, not deny and defend it, but actually come to terms with its meaning in the present and use that as a guide to move forward in positive directions. Um, So, you know, no one says, well, let's forget about um, Joseph Smith and the martyrdom or the Latter-day Saints being expelled from Missouri under threat of extermination. Uh, We engage in church history. It's taught at BYU. Uh, We pull hand cards to remember the sacrifices of white Latter-day Saint hand card pioneers. Um, So um, why is it then we would suggest that, uh, you know, um, Black Latter-day Saint history we should just forget about? Black Latter-day Saint history is Latter-day Saint history. It's a part of the Latter-day Saint story. So it needs to be included. the story isn't complete until all members of the body of Christ are represented. And Black Latter-day Saints have been a part of this story from 1830 to the present, including Black priesthood holders. Uh, so, you know, um, just saying, okay, let's move forward. Um, then repentance isn't, um, we, we haven't gone through the act of repentance. Um, we haven't actually uh, confessed and engaged with um, what the past looks like so that we can, in fact, move forward and not be hobbled by our racial past. Ignoring it doesn't work. Going silent on it doesn't work. Thank you for that. Um, it's really your time to talk about whatever you want to talk about. Um, it, but if I were to ask you a question, I'd probably ask you to talk about these three sections if you want to structure it that way or wherever you want to go, I'd love to talk about just the, the, the historical facts. You're a historian of that there was no restriction. And then I've been, this is where I got lost track of time as when I was reading chapter 11, Orson Pratt and a premortal explanation, which is your work to try to figure out how this different theories came into our church around the racial restriction. and. Uh, and that was fascinating to me. Just there wasn't just one idea. There were several ideas going around and some of them sort of took root, if that's the right visual imagery. And then obviously those, well, why don't you have better vocabulary than I have? So I'm just going to let you talk, Paul. 
Okay, sure. Um, you know, I, I, I wanted, um, I wanted readers to appreciate the fact that Black Latter-day Saints existed. And so the first two chapters are simply, so there's the introductory chapter, which I hope draws readers in. Um, it starts out with a, a mixed racial couple who are denied temple admission um, in 1909 uh, after converting to the faith. Um, one uh, a member of this interracial couple uh, is a former uh, enslaved man. Um, and they are denied admission into the temple. And yet all of their children, all of their nine children, either in life or by proxy after death, receive priesthood ordination or temple admission before 1978. And so I use that family history to demonstrate the impossibility of policing racial boundaries and even defining race. Uh, what is race? I hope readers are willing to engage with that very question because um, is it skin color? Is it something biological passed in the blood as people thought in the 19th century? Or is it just simply something we have constructed in our human minds to denigrate and um, you know, justify uh, hatred as well as you know, genocide even uh, of other people who don't look like us? Um, and I think the Ritchie family um, demonstrates this. Uh, the descendants in the present, in the 21st century, continue to have, continue to reveal African ancestry in their DNA, but they look white. Um, and according to racial policies in place, they shouldn't have received priesthood in temples. Uh, temple admission before 1978, and yet all the children of uh, this uh, mixed racial couple pass as white and receive priesthood ordination and temple admission. So, you know, it just illustrates then the impossibility of, of policing racial boundaries. So with that kind of um, as an introduction, what I wanted readers to do is just understand that there were Black Latter-day Saints from the beginning. In my experience as a Latter-day Saint, um, sometimes we pretend like they only uh, existed after 1978, and we don't talk about uh, Black Latter-day Saints before 1978 because maybe we're uncomfortable addressing our own uh, racism or confronting it. Um, so uh, the first chapter is just um, Black converts in the North and then Black converts in the South. And um, just wanted readers to be aware that enslaved people were being baptized into the faith. Um, in fact, uh, we have documented at least 26. I think there are more, but record keeping was spotty. At least 26 enslaved people who were baptized into the faith before um, 1865 when slavery is outlawed in the nation. Um, so enslaved at the moment of baptism, right? There were also freed blacks who were baptized before 1865, but um, 26 enslaved people. Um, so I wanted readers to just get to know a few of these people and some pretty remarkable stories, but just to recognize that sometimes one of the explanations that I hear being repeated is that the racial restrictions were just God's timing. The gospel was for white people first and then black people. If you understand the history, 
then you need to recognize that that's just absolutely false. Joseph Smith claims five revelations, which instruct him that the gospel is to be preached unto every creature. Who does every creature leave out? It's pretty explicit. The revelations of the restoration explicitly states the gospel is to be preached unto every creature. That leaves no one out. And Joseph Smith claims two revelations in 1831 in which he says the Lord is telling him, all flesh is mine and I am no respecter of persons. What color of flesh is Jesus not the savior of? And we have two revelations um, that Joseph Smith claims in 1831, in which Jesus claims all flesh is his own and declares in first person voice, I am no respecter of persons. So we have to come to terms with, you know, the founding revelations of of the restoration. Um, And that's one of the things I attempt to do in, in this little volume. And listeners should be aware, you know, um, the um, the whole um, sort of structure of the Let's Talk About series, these are short, um, accessible um, volumes. And, you know, Desert Book said, you know, think about short chapters. And so some of the chapters are three and four pages long, um, but designed to move the narrative forward. But also each one, I think, um, built around certain pieces of evidence that help us to understand how the racial restrictions then um, the, the fact, well, the first part is just, um, hey, here's the evidence that there are no restrictions in place in the first couple of decades. And um, one of the pieces of evidence that I really like is an October 1840 um, message that the first presidency publishes in the Nauvoo newspaper, The Times and Seasons. And they are so exuberant in October of 1840 about the successes that they've had in in sharing the gospel around the globe that they just um, kind of can't constrain themselves. So that chapter is chapter six, and I I just call it um, universalism at Nauvoo. And maybe I could even just um, share share a little bit of, of this um, message that the First Presidency includes in the Nauvoo newspaper, because I don't think people are aware, right? It's, it's another piece of evidence that the racial restrictions are not in place from the beginning. So um, they're pretty excited about the early success of missionary work. And um, let me just share this opening paragraph of chapter six. In 1840 at Nauvoo, as the First Presidency contemplated the early success of missionaries gathering God's children from across the earth, they were unrestrained. Quote, if the work row forth with the same rapidity it is heretofore done, we may soon expect to see flocking to this place people from every land and from every nation. The polished European, the degraded Hottentot, And for those who aren't aware, the um, Hottentot was a 19th century term used to refer to Black tribal South Africans, or sometimes more generally, Black Africans, right? So the first presidency is saying, hey, the work is going so well, we expect flowing into this city before long, uh, the polished European, the degraded Hottentot, 
um, the shivering Laplander. And then they also went on to say, we anticipate, quote, persons of all languages and of every tongue and of every color who shall with us worship the Lord of hosts in his holy temple and offer up their horizons in his sanctuary. An open articulation that every color would be welcome into the Navu temple that they would start to build the following spring. Um, once again, if you want to suggest that our restrictions are in place from the beginning, you're going to have to argue against the evidence because the evidence indicates otherwise. And that's just one example of the pieces of evidence in the first third, um, that first um, section of the book with open priesthood and open temples. And obviously um, include examples of Black Latter-day Saints in the most well-documented priesthood holder is Elijah Abel. Uh, but also include uh, Kiwaka Lewis, um, who is also an ordained elder in the Little Massachusetts branch. Um, but uh, Elijah Abel, because he's at the um, center of events, you know, around in, in Ohio, he um, is ordained to the priesthood in January of 1836 as an elder. Um, by the end of 1836, a member of the Third Quorum of the Seventy. Also in 1836, receives his washing and anointing rituals in the Kirtland Temple. So once again, um, just evidence upon evidence that there were no restrictions in place in the first couple of decades. Um, and that's what that first section is, is designed to do, is simply lay out the evidence. Very helpful. Keep sharing. Um, so then... Um, the, the the second section is probably the more difficult section to write as well as to grapple with as as readers, I think. And, you know, I, I hope your listeners understand and I try to attune people to this fact in the introduction that this is heavy history. Um, this is heavy history. Uh, and um, my hope is that in in engaging with it, we can lift the burden of this racism collectively, that as Latter-day Saints, uh, when we join together collectively, we become true and living. And that my experience as a Latter-day Saint is that we do community really well. Uh, and this is a one way in which we can collectively become true and living is in helping to lift this burden. And so the second section is really the more difficult history because that open racial uh, vision then deteriorates across the course of the 19th century. And uh, Brigham Young becomes concerned about race mixing amongst his followers and by 1852, he is openly articulating a racial priesthood restriction. He does so in a couple of speeches before the Utah Territorial Legislature. And that legislature is um, debating uh, what laws will govern uh, the relationship between white enslavers and their black enslaved people who have been brought to the territory already. There are no laws on the books governing this relationship. And um, it really produces, a, a, I think, a profound debate 
in fact, one of the most significant debates in Latter-day Saint history, in my estimation, between Brigham Young, who is territorial governor, as well as leader of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, president of the church, and um, legislator Orson Pratt, who is also apostle Orson Pratt. And these two men stridently disagree about what is the proper uh, law that should be passed um, in this legislative session. And uh, Brigham Young is then articulating a cursed racial identity for people of Black African descent. Um, So ideas about slavery and race and priesthood get mingled together in Brigham Young's speeches. And Orson Pratt um, is speaking stridently against uh, slavery in 19th century Utah Territory. And he's also advocating for Black male voting rights in 1852 in Utah. And so Uh, The debate between those two people produced Brigham Young's most strident articulation of a racial restriction, but also um, some of his most racist comments um, come out of that debate with with Orson Pratt. Um, And it's it's like I said, it's it's heavy history Um, in response to Orson Pratt suggesting that black men should be allowed to vote. Brigham Young says we just as well give mules the right to vote as Negroes and Indians. Um, and, um, you know, that's, that's all in this volume. Um, I, uh, when, when Deseret Book, uh, invited me to write this, I said, you know, you have to read Brigham Young's 5th of February, 1852 speech and be aware that I will be quoting from it. Um, or, you know, this is going nowhere. Um, that was a condition from, from the beginning and, to Deseret Book's credit, uh, they they were willing uh, to allow me to do that. I said, you know, you can't come to me after the manuscript is is written and say, you know, you can't include that. And so I wanted them to be aware up front um, uh, what that speech contained and uh, simply said, look, I'll, I'll be quoting from it. And it's a really difficult speech. And in that same speech, he then articulates a cursed racial identity for people of Black African descent and says they are, because Cain killed his brother Abel, they are cursed from the priesthood. Um, and that becomes then the genesis of the racial priesthood restriction. Um, I also deal with the book of Abraham in the book um, and how some Latter-day Saint leaders in the 19th century are drawing upon that as a racial justification for excluding priesthood. Um, And then the chapter that you mentioned deals with Orson Pratt. Um, Orson Pratt never, um, never accepts Brigham Young's explanation, rejects the notion that Black people are descendants of Cain. He actually says that in 1856, we have no proof, he says, uh, that Africans are descendants of Cain. Really important um, that Orson Pratt, an apostle in the 19th century, rejects the only rationale Brigham Young ever gives for the racial restriction. 
um, and uh, says, you know, black people are not, we have no proof that black people are, are, are descendants of Cain. And hopefully in 2023, you, you know, your listeners um, recognize that Orson Pratt is 100% correct. Uh, that was a longstanding idea that predated the founding of the faith and used to justify racial enslavement of, of black people. Um, you know, that, that black people are cursed descendants of Cain and also cursed descendants of Ham. Um, and God has cursed them and um, they are to be servants of servants. And that's to justify racial slavery. And that, that uh, predates the founding of, of the faith. Um, and yet we see Brigham Young um, importing those ideas into the faith and then giving them theological weight to justify racial priesthood restrictions. Um, so Orson Pratt rejects that. Um, idea that black people are descendants of Cain. And, and obviously we can think through that and unpack that in terms of the simple fact that it violates the second article of faith. Joseph Smith said, we're accountable for our own sins, not for Adam's transgression. And, and yet Brigham Young's cursed racial restriction uh, holds the supposed descendants of Cain accountable for a murder in which they took no part. Um, so, Orson Pratt, um, tragically in 1853, then comes up with an alternative alternative explanation. Um, Orson Hyde had previously said, well, black skin is explainable because uh, black people must have, uh, you know, made mistakes in the pre-mortal life, uh, been neutral or fence sitters. And Orson Pratt, um, then in 1853, will um, perpetuate that explanation and link it to priesthood restriction. So those are the two competing explanations that exist, continue to exist in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints all the way up to 2013 and uh, when the First Presidency and Quorum of Twelve Apostles officially disavow those two. And it's traceable then back to this debate between Orson Pratt and Brigham Young. Brigham Young rejects any notion that uh, anyone was neutral in, in the pre-mortal life and, uh, you know, returns immediately in 1869 back to his standard explanation um, uh, that uh, Black people are cursed descendants of Cain. Uh, and so you have those two explanations that exist um, all the way uh, you know, through the 20th century, and they originate in that debate between Orson Pratt and Brigham Young. That's fascinating. Um, that was completely new to me, listeners, and what caused me to lose track of time. And I encourage all of us to read that. I've there's you know several chapters in that section. Looks like from chapter nine to chapter sixteen. So I encourage us all to read that and ponder that and recognize how we could do better and how we got to where we are. Were there other senior leaders of the church that were advocating um, to return to Joseph Smith's day that this, um, and I don't know, you know, were there other voices? Cause these two voices were arguing didn't disappoint two different points of view for the restriction. Were there other senior leaders during this same time arguing that we should go back to where Joseph Smith was? Yeah, so, so what takes place, you know, after Brigham Young kind of establishes this rationale for racial restrictions is that each succeeding generation uh, becomes unwilling to violate the precedent established by Brigham Young 
even though Brigham Young's precedent is a violation of open racial priesthood and temples established by Joseph Smith. And so they start relying upon distant and sometimes false memories. Um, so John Taylor, who is the leader after Brigham Young, is confronted um, with this question again in 1879 when Elijah Abel applies for his endowment and to be sealed to his wife, Mary Ann, who's also a Black Latter-day Saint pioneer. Um, they raise um, their family in the faith, uh, and their, their son Moroni is ordained to an, an elder in the priesthood in 1871. Um, so even the racial restrictions play out unevenly in Elijah Abel's family. Um, it's a deathbed ordination in 1871, but nonetheless, he's ordained to the priesthood before he passes away, um, Moroni Abel, in, in Ogden in 1871. Um, so uh, Elijah Abel applies for his priesthood, or excuse me, for his um, endowment and to be sealed to his wife, who has passed away in 1877. And so to answer your question, I mean, um, it's, it's additional evidence that the racial restrictions aren't in place from the beginning because John Taylor, who's the leader of the faith, doesn't know what to do. Here's a black priesthood holder, uh, received his temple um, a, a, a Washington anointing rituals in, in Kirtland, is not in Nauvoo when the endowment is introduced and now has uh, migrated to Utah territory and wants the rest of his temple rituals. And the very leader of the faith is unsure what to do. So it's additional evidence that the racial restrictions aren't unambiguously in place as late as 1879, because John Taylor conducts an investigation and he sends Joseph F. Smith to interview Elijah Abel. And Elijah, uh, Joseph F. Smith comes back um, and reports and says, look, he's got priesthood certificates. He's got evidence. He, he, he claimed that Joseph Smith told him that uh, he was entitled to the priesthood and promised him all the blessings associated with it. Um, he, he gave me the people who gave him his Washington anointings in Kirtland. Like jo Joseph Smith comes back with all this evidence. And um, John Taylor then, you know, in thinking through this, says, well... Maybe it's like some things that were done in the early days of the church and then were corrected later. So maybe Joseph Smith's um, open priesthood is the mistake and Brigham Young's closed priesthood is the real policy. Um, but he refuses to revoke Elijah Abel's priesthood. He allows it to stand, but he does not allow him entrance into the temple. So the priesthood restrictions, you know, are growing um, and accumulating precedent over time. And um, ironically, um, Elijah Abel will then be called in 1883 on a third mission. So his priesthood is still valid, but he's not allowed into the temple. Um, uh, Joseph F. Smith actually sets him apart as a missionary in 1883. He goes back to Ohio on his third mission for the faith returns back to Salt Lake um, in 1884 and dies within two weeks of his return. And his obituary is um, published in the Deseret News. And it's an atypical eulogy. It um, lists his priesthood ordination dates and then closes by saying he died in full faith in the gospel. 
I don't know who wrote his obituary, but whoever it was seemed to be sort of, um, you know, writing not only for that generation, but for the ages saying, um, I, I challenge you to deny his priesthood ordination and his devotion to his chosen faith. Um, so, you know, um, were there people who um, said we should go back to Joseph Smith? Um, you know, as late as 1900, you have Lorenzo Snow, who is the leader of the faith, who says, I don't think this policy is, is settled. Um, and he is having a discussion um, with George Q. Cannon. Um, and in 1900, they're trying to decide, well, how much African ancestry can a person have before they should be excluded from priesthood and temples? And George Q. Cannon starts to argue for what comes to be called a one-drop policy, that even one drop of African ancestry should exclude someone. And that will be the policy in 1907. And there's a chapter in the book um, on the one-drop policy um, that illustrates the challenge of defining race, right? They, uh, so leaders in, in Salt Lake are aware that there are several people of mixed racial ancestry who have received uh, their temple rituals. Um, and uh, finally, you know, because you have to decide each of these cases, um, well, by 1907, they simply say, okay, one drop is the policy. Um, it's not based on worthiness. It's based on any African ancestry. Even if they look white, if we can verify African ancestry, then they're going to be excluded from priesthood and temples. That's fascinating. Um, I got goosebumps when you're talking about Elijah Abel and that obituary that was written for the ages, to use your language, and that all those ordinances were documented there. Yeah, he's he's really remarkable. I just um, it, it's hard for me to get my head around. You know, um, they don't allow. He he wants to be still to the love of his life, Marianne. Uh, she's a, a Black Latter Day Saint pioneer as well. They're both of mixed racial ancestry, so you know, usually defined as mulatto in in, in census records. But nonetheless, they don't ever pass as white. Um, and uh, he 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 wants to be sealed. You know have his love for her sealed for eternity. And it's, it's such, um, heartbreaking, um, for me that, uh, he's not allowed that. And yet, um, in 1883, he called on a third mission and goes and serves faithfully. Um, it just kind of tugs at my heartstrings, uh, when I think about that. Talk about Thrace, Thrace three of the book, the 1978 revelation. And that that's not the finish line in this space, and we're still not at the finish line. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the third phase, um, you know, addresses 1978, and, you know, I um, just rely uh, on that chapter. In that chapter, I just rely on um, President Kimball's son, Edward's article that was... um, uh, published in uh, BYU Studies, and is probably the most open and closest we'll get um, to what was going on with President Kimball in the years leading up to the 1978 revelation. 
Um, and sort of the sense that he is reaching for a revelation um, that, you know, he's laying the groundwork. There was a lack of consensus amongst the, the leaders and he's trying to um, lay the groundwork and bring about consensus and also studying out the issue, finding no um, scriptural uh, justifications and um, re-examining the history um, indications that he's read Lester Bush's seminal 1973 article published in Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, which um, says, look, the racial restrictions weren't in place from the beginning. Now, there's no evidence to indicate that. And, you know, all the historians who have looked at it since then, including myself, like just reaffirm what Lester Bush published in 1973. And that includes the Joseph Smith Papers people, right? Like uh, they have found no evidence. Uh, you know, they have like 10 academically trained historians working on uh, the Joseph Smith Papers Project, um, and they have found no evidence of Joseph Smith instigating a racial priesthood and temple restrictions. Um, so um, uh, I include that, but um, also deliberately, Richard, I, I actually frame that chapter around a Black Latter-day Saint woman. Um, because I want I want I wanted readers to um, I wanted readers to get to know Frida, Lucretia, McGee, Ballou. And a lot of times we only talk about um, the racial restrictions as a priesthood restriction. And I wanted readers to think about a black woman. Um, and so her story actually frames the, the 1978 Revelation chapter. She's baptized in a creek outside of Tylertown, Mississippi in 1909. And she remains faithful. She moves to New Orleans. And in 1944, she falls sick. She doesn't know that there's a branch of the church meeting in New Orleans. She subscribes to the Liahona, which is the Southern States Mission um, Missionary Magazine at the time. And she sends her tithing in to the Atlanta Mission Home. She's married um, a Catholic by this point. Um, she had a first marriage, uh, and it wasn't a happy marriage, according to her own description. Uh, her husband did not like her faith and was not kind to her. Um, he had children, and she waited until uh, his children were old enough to take care of themselves, and then she divorced him. The whole time she was married to him, anytime she got a little money, she would squirrel away her tithing in her trunk um, outside of her husband's purview, and when she divorced him and moved back in with her parents, she said she proudly paid that tithing that she had been saving up all that time. So she then moves to New Orleans, marries the love of her life, Rudolph Ballou, and falls sick in 1944 and um, wrote to the mission home in Atlanta asking for elders to come and give her a blessing, um, but then just waits in bed. Um, and her husband actually tracks down branch leaders in New Orleans and invites them to their home to give her a blessing. 
And she believes uh, that blessing restores her health. She gets out of bed the next day and said she was fine ever since. So um, that's, that's Frida. But um, in July of 1978, so just less than a month after the June 1978 revelation, she's traveled a thousand miles to the Washington, D.C. temple uh, to be sealed to the love of her life, Rudolph, who has predeceased her, sealed by proxy. And the person who stands in as proxy for, for Rudolph is the branch president who found her sick in bed in 1944. But why I wanted to share her story is simply because I wanted readers to appreciate the fact that she waited 69 years to be allowed into a Latter-day Saint temple. It's not just a priesthood restriction, but Black women were barred from temple admission. And Frida exemplifies that in a really profound way. Um, she devoted her life and paid her tithing faithfully. She could answer the temple recommend questions exactly the same as a white person. And the white person would be admitted and Frida would be denied. Frida did not need to repent in 1978 to qualify for a temple recommend, in other words. But the church she loved uh, perhaps did. And um, within one month of, of that 1978 revelation, um, she is in the Washington, D.C. temple. And she refers to that day as the happiest day of her life. And she does so in a talk that she gives at New Orleans State Conference in 1982. She calls that day that she was sealed to her beloved Rudolph the happiest day of her life. And if you appreciate the fact that she waited 69 years to get into a Latter-day Saint temple, um, I think it becomes really compelling for us to understand um, the implications of that 1978 revelation. It's one thing to understand it from the perspective of the white male leaders, but I wanted readers to understand it from the perspective of a faithful black Latter-day Saint woman. Well, that brought me to tears. <laughs> and probably a bunch of our listeners and readers of the book. What a wonderful style of reading, of writing as a historian, um, but then bringing, that seems to be one of your gifts to our community, is with the database is bringing life um, to readers. Um, stories change our hearts, Paul, and they help us develop compassion and empathy and understanding. and. When you talk about seven decades, if somebody has a testimony of the temple, um, pays tithing, that helps me better understand that this wasn't just black men, and the, this is um, black Latter-day Saints. Um, love to have you talk more about phase three. I've got some questions for you. I don't know which, if you want to hear questions or want to talk more about phase three of your book. Okay, um, so let me let me just respond to what you said, Richard, because um, I mean, you identified one of the things that I, I hoped to be able to do in this book, and and this, you know, I, I think the timing of it, um, the fact that we have a couple of years of Century of Black Mormons and the biographies allowed me to include those stories, um, so that. Exactly what you said, which I'm just trying to emphasize the point that you just made, because I think it's really important. Um, you know, uh, 
um, histories of the racial restrictions, um, including my own, um, tend to uh, talk about them and deal with them from a white administrative male perspective. And there are reasons for that. That's where the sources are. Um, And we need to understand those decisions and the decision-making process, right? But um, because of the Century of Black Mormons database, uh, you know, in this this volume, I was able to include, well, what are the ramifications of those decisions in the lives of actual Black Latter-day Saints? And and um, to me, that's that's the important aspect of, of this volume is that it shows us how it played out in individual lives and unevenly in in various uh, different Black Latter Day Saint lives. And um, I hope then, like you mentioned, that that readers can come to identify with these individuals. It's not just distant policy decisions, but it's actual, real, and up close lives of, of Black Latter-day Saints um, and, and what the implications were. So um, that was all just to say, I'm, I'm glad that came through because that was a hope. Um, and the Century of Black Mormons database allowed that to happen. And so it's also a shout out to all of the wonderful people who have worked um, you know, to make that possible with, with Century of Black Mormons. Thank you. So, and then for the third part, I, yeah, happy to just ask answer questions um, for the third part of the book. Yeah, and this may be in your book, but if it's not, tell us about Bruce R. McConkie after the twenty, this nineteen seventy eight revelation. What he said at BYU. Yeah, it is. Um, it is in the book, so it's chapter eighteen, um, and I can just read that first paragraph. Um, so within months of the June 1978 revelation, Elder Bruce R. McConkie spoke at Brigham Young University. Quote, it doesn't make a particle of difference what anybody ever said about the Negro matter before the first day of June of this year, he announced. Forget everything that I have said or what President Brigham Young or George Q. Cannon or whomsoever has said in days past that is contrary to the present revelation. We spoke with a limited understanding and without the light and knowledge that has now come into the world. Um, and so I use that um, that talk that he gave at Brigham Young um, to then start to grapple with um, post-revelation justifications. So he sort of says that um, to the BYU audience, but nonetheless, we have come up with a variety of justifications after uh, the the 78 revelation to try to justify and explain it away rather than in my estimation the required work to root out racism we um, come up with excuses and justifications talk rather about, than doing the work that it requires to root it out talk more about that yeah so um you know uh, it, like i said it's it's difficult history and so we we like to come up with explanations that kind of stand in or explain away the racial restrictions um and i deal with some of those in that chapter um and it, um you know I, I i share an experience i had in in 2010 in my own congregation just uh, teaching uh deacon's quorum um and uh, the lesson one Sunday was on the attributes of God, 
And the lesson manual stipulated that one of the attributes of God is that God is no respecter of persons. And so talking to these 12-year-old deacons, uh, just trying to unpack what that meant. And one of the 12-year-old deacons raised his hand and said, well, if God is no respecter of persons, then why did he curse Black people with Black skin? And this is a person who had grown up completely in a post-1978 church. There were no racial restrictions in place, and yet still had come to believe that Black skin is a result of a curse from God. So it became evident to me that going silent was not uh, the right approach, right? That it wasn't working. If, if the tactic was, okay, we'll just let those old teachings die out. Uh, we'll go silent on them. And within a generation, you know, um, everything will be hunky-dory. Um, this gave me firsthand evidence that that's not the case. Uh, going silent doesn't solve the issue. We have to actively unteach the falsehoods that were previously taught. We have to proactively um, say black skin is not a curse. We have to proactively teach that black people are not descendants of Cain or of Ham or of Canaan. We have to completely disavow, but also teach. It has to be in the curriculum. It has to be repeated. We spent 130 years um, teaching those false uh, ideas. We have to take 130 years and be committed to unteaching them, right, to eradicate it. And, um, and, in, and instead of justifying and explaining away, what if we owned it? Right. Um, so I try to grapple with that in, in the last um, section of the book. Um, I deal with um, we already addressed the notion. Well, you know, um, uh, white people first and then black people in parallel to Jews first and then Gentiles. Um, so I address that. Um, the tribe of Levi explanation also has come to stand in as, you know, a way of trying to explain the racial restrictions. And I address that, um, the notion that, well, everyone was racist back then. So that's just how it was. I address that. Joseph Smith was a product of the 19th century and he sanctioned priesthood ordination. So, you know, um, he's a product of his cultural milieu. Can't just simply say, well, Brigham Young is a uh, product of his time and didn't know any better, right? There were those who were advocating for full Black racial equality in the 19th century. So it's not uh, uh, what, what historians call presentism, right? We shouldn't superimpose a present on the past. It's not presentism to hold them accountable to the standards of their day. Actually, it's an invitation to understand the standards of their day, and racism was racism even in the 19th century. There were those who were advocating for full Black equality, Orson Pratt advocating for Black voting rights in Utah Territory in 1852, and he's a product of the 19th century, so you can't just simply dismiss it as, oh, everyone was uh, racist back then. Um, and, you know, um, another justification that I hear um, is that 
well, um, treating black people equally would have brought down the church. Um, and I address that um, explanation or justification in, in that chapter as well. Um, so try to work through some of the ways that we continue to try to dismiss and excuse rather than do the work that it requires to root out racism. I've heard the third one the most in my lifetime, and I'm glad you addressed that. And I'll probably, after the recording of the podcast, read that chapter of your book, which I've never done after a podcast. Um, it's such a fascinating topic for me. Um, I've written down, you know, there's some people that would say this was still God's plan, Paul, that Joe's, that Brigham Young reflected God's will for the church during this time. And there are other faithful Latter-day Saints says, no, this wasn't God's plan for the church. It was never meant to be um, a racial or temple ban. Do you want to talk about that? Is it okay for Latter-day Saints to fall in either camp? Or do you really feel like, you know, if you really understand the history, you you need to fall in a certain camp. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, um, you know, uh, if uh, your listeners, those who re- read the book, it will be clear what camp I'm in. And, and <laughs> you know, I, I say it explicitly in the book. And, and you know, um, Desiree Book uh, just uh, asked me to be clear. I'm speaking only for myself. And I say that in the book. I'm speaking only for myself. But um, I'm hoping that readers will actually engage with the evidence. Um, so uh, the evidence is laid out uh, in the structure of the book, but also, um, you know, the, uh, the actual uh, documents that I, that I quote and that story that I tell, um, Brigham Young never claims a revelation. There's no revelation that anyone can point to for the origins of the racial restrictions. Um, and so uh, really, you know, uh, what it boils down to is um, sort of following the evidence. And uh, in, in, in my view, there is no evidence uh, that uh, the racial restrictions are of divine origins. I can trace how they became entrenched over time. And I do that uh, in this short little volume. Um, you know, how do we go from open priesthood and temples to segregated priesthood and temples? Um, how do they become solidified over time? And it's just, you know, brick after brick after brick, you create this wall of exclusion. And that's what the evidence is. Um, and by the early 20th century, then leaders are falsely remembering back and simply saying, well, the restrictions have been in place from the beginning. Um, and that begins under Joseph F. Smith. So, you know, um, that becomes the narrative they believe. I believe, uh, you know, that they are sincere in, in that belief. They haven't gone back and investigated, right? Um, uh, and so it takes time to unwind that existing narrative. Um, so, you know, if we're going to root out racism, then we have to grapple with, with that narrative and where the evidence leads us. And I say in, in this book, you know, um, I don't believe it's of divine origins. Um, and and the, the question from my deacon really gets at the heart of the issue, right? Um, the restrictions would then violate the very nature of godhood. Um, God is no respecter of persons. Christ says that twice in 1831 to Joseph Smith. I am no respecter of persons. 
Um, it violates the scriptural standards established. Um, reads Second uh, Nephi 26, the entire chapter, not just all are alike unto God, but the entire chapter. Um, so anything that is in violation with, you know, the standard works really becomes the issue. And I, I deal with that in that third section, right? Like, how do we reconcile this? How do we make sense of it? And Deseret Book actually asked me to do that. Like, walk us through how you do that as a scholar, but also as, as a believer. And so those final chapters are just a chapter by chapter sort of way of um, thinking through it. And I'm just trying to open up my thought process. Um, some people, you know, are not going to agree with me, um, but I'm just laying out, uh, you know, how I see this. So, you know, um, chapter 19, agency in the gospel plan. Um, if black skin is not a curse, why did God allow Brigham Young and other leaders to teach that it was? That's a question I deal with in that chapter. In my estimation, agency lies at the heart of the question. Um, Chapter 20, if the restrictions were wrong, if they were out of harmony with modern and ancient scripture, how do we square them with President Wilford Woodruff's promise that the Lord will never permit me or any other man who stands as president of this church to lead you astray? Um, I address the hard questions. Maybe, uh, you know, everyone's not maybe going to be on board with where I come down on this, but um, Desert Book asked me to do that. And the fact that, you know, they they um, published this is, is credit to them and what they're trying to do with this series. Um, chapter 21. How do we reconcile what Brigham Young said in 1852 that this people that are commonly called Negroes are the children of Cain? I know they are. I know they cannot bear rule in the priesthood with the fact that Jesus Christ twice declared in 1831, I am no respecter of persons. And I deal with that question in, in that chapter. Um, and the final chapter is just uh, a path forward. Like, how do we, how do we move forward uh, with this very heavy history? Um, so, yeah, I, I, I am very clear where I land on that question. And um, I, I think it is counterintuitive to uh, have the leader of our faith calling us to lead out in abandoning prejudice and then not fully grapple with, do we recognize that Frida can answer the temple recommend questions the exact same as a white person and be denied admission, not based on worthiness, based on skin color. That's called racism. Are we willing to actually understand what that means and what the policies actually look like in practice? Uh, so then that leads me to the conclusion, if God is no respecter of persons, these are not of, uh, these did not originate with, with him that violates his very being as a God. Just deeply moved listening to you, Paul. For me, this is faith building and needed work in our community, and especially I'm 61. Um, but some ways I see the church through millennial eyes and Gen Z's eyes, your students' eyes, and they want to talk about these complicated issues. And they need... Um, people with a grounded voice like yours, a historian, um, somebody who believes to talk about that. So I'm grateful for Desert Book 
think we do better when we talk about these subjects versus not. Um, and we, um, so this is really needed work. Um, I hope that local leaders, ward councils, fifth elders, quorums, and release societies think about talking about this in a fifth Sunday. Um, it gives parents better tools to answer their kids' questions. If you've got younger kids coming up, it gives you tools to help your deacon answer, understand what the church teaches. Um, some would say, Paul, this has never been a, you know, we sometimes have this debate about doctrine versus policy. And some would sort of say, well, this was not a big deal because it was never doctrine. It was just a policy and our doctrine never changes. So there's really nothing here that is earth shattering. Any thoughts on that sort of thinking? Yeah. Yeah. You know, those, those words play out amongst Latter-day Saints in, in a variety of ways. I mean, doctrine, if you look at its definition is, is simply teaching. That's what it means. Um, and when you, when you belong to a faith that uh, claims as one of the tenets of its faith that we believe in continuing revelation, then you got to, expect change. Um, it's, it's just foundational to who we are as Latter-day Saints. Um, so it, you know, it gets really difficult in terms of the racial priesthood and temple restrictions. If, uh, so, so, um, I'm going to try to answer it this way. So, so president McKay does say to Sterling McMurrin, um, you know, this is a policy, not a doctrine. Uh, that's a conclusion that he arrives at, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't taught as doctrine at uh, points in Latter-day Saint history. And um, one of the chapters I deal with, um, I'm just going to flip to it really quickly, uh, that, that we have to sort of come to terms with is that there was a book published in... 1954, uh, no, uh, 1959, called Mormon Doctrine. So if you're trying to say, well, you know, it wasn't taught as doctrine, you have to grapple with the fact that it was a, uh, included in a book called Mormon Doctrine, which continued to be sold up until 2010, defining Black people as cursed. So, um, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to escape that uncomfortable truth. And I deal with that um, in chapter 15 of the book. Um, and maybe I can just um, read maybe a little section there. Um, let's see. Just, just to give an indication of what was included in, in Mormon doctrine, right? So um, it doesn't give us a lot of wiggle room if we just try to say, oh, well, that was just a policy, um, simply because a very popular book called Mormon Doctrine included these racial teachings, codified them, and, you know, solidified them um, in encyclopedic form in this book. So um, I'll just share a little bit from chapter 15. Adding to the doctrinal error of the restrictions, four years later, Elder Bubusar McConkie, then a member of the First Council of the 70, published a popular and authoritatively titled book 
Mormon doctrine. In it, he included entries on Cain, Ham, Negroes, and what he called a divinely ordered caste system. His explanations on those subjects helped to codify racial teachings, as well as extend the corresponding restrictions forward. As a result of his rebellion, Cain was cursed with a dark skin, McConkie wrote. He became the father of the Negroes, and those spirits who are not worthy to receive the priesthood or are born through his lineage. And then I go through and trace um, the different iterations over time. He does change some of the entries in 1979 after the revelation, doesn't change the case system entry, and they're still uh, then published up through 2010 when it's finally pulled from the shelves, uh, the notion that Black people are cursed descendants of Cain. So um, under the, the title Mormon Doctrine, so... You know, you can debate policy versus doctrine, but you have to confront the fact that uh, those teachings were codified in a book called Mormon Doctrine. Um, thank you. I, I would think I could ask you any question about this space, and it wouldn't be a new question to you. You haven't spent <laughs> hundreds of hours thinking about researching and just so grateful for your voice. Um, listeners, sometimes I'll hear things in Sunday school like our doctrine has never changed and it will never change. and I just feel different. It, my my faith as a Latter-day Saint is our doctrine has changed. If we could, Paul could do this better than me, perhaps go through 10 things that we taught as doctrine because they were our teachings and changed. And I think our doctrine will, can continue to change. And I don't advocate for changes in doctrine. I think the pattern, it comes through our leaders. And so I support that pattern. But I, it may be a more sustainable approach for Latter-day Saints to um, believe our doctrine has changed and will continue to change, and and it's an ongoing restoration as we better match what I would ca- call the pure gospel of Jesus Christ that we're still trying to perfectly match um, with our restored church. I love when you um, were on our earlier podcast, you really shifted me on something because you, um, and I think I wrote this in my second book about improving Latter-day Saint culture, is you didn't want to be cast as an unfaithful Latter-day Saint because you didn't think the priesthood restrictions were from God. And um, maybe, do you want to talk more about that? Is just, um, there are probably more and more that feel like this wasn't from God. And if they open up in church or a family, some would say, well, you're on the slippery slope to apostasy. You're not fully in the church or... And do you want to just talk a little bit more about creating space in Zion for people that don't believe this is from God? Yeah, yeah that that that's what makes uh, this this topic and this discussion sort of personal is because I've experienced that you know in my own faith um, journey um, and you know it stings, Richard. I'll be frank, um, uh, but. Um, to to call someone's faith into question because they articulate that. And and now I've articulated it very publicly (laughs) and articulated it uh, in a book published by Deseret Book, in fact, um, to suggest then um, that a person who subscribes to that position is somehow um, doesn't have faith. Uh, You know, in fact, um, I, I've, I've read the evidence. I've looked at the documents. I've spent a decade in the archives. Uh, this is the evidence that I've returned with. This is the evidence that I found. And 
you think it doesn't have take faith? Do you think it doesn't take faith to look at this evidence and um, be a believer? Uh, you know, so I think it takes profound faith. And I think we should think about ways that we can be inclusive, inclusive of, um, you know, people who might think differently than us, who might look differently than us, who might vote differently than us. That's what Zion is supposed to look like. Uh, we are unified in our devotion to Jesus Christ. That's why I show up on Sunday, because I'm there to take partake of the bread of sinners and promise to follow him the following week. And when I mess up, I'm going to be back again next Sunday, um, you know, uh, looking for hope in Jesus Christ. And um, that is what I hope this book can help people think through. Um, is how how can we be unified and inclusive amidst our diversity? That's the call. That's the call to build a Latter-day Zion. That's what it means to be a Christian disciple. Um, and in the final chapter, um, maybe I can just read a little section there. Um, in a revelation to Joseph Smith in 1831, Jesus Christ offers us a way to, uh, you know, claim all flesh as our own. And let every man esteem his brother as himself and practice virtue and holiness before me. DNC 3824. We are called as a disciple of Christ to esteem our brother as ourself and practice virtue and holiness. So that's my calling as a disciple, to esteem my, esteem my brothers and sisters as myself. However, if we imagine our brothers and sisters to be only people who look like us, we are missing the point. To esteem our brothers and sisters as ourselves is a call to recognize the diversity that exists among us, to see color, and to do the work that it takes to understand what life looks like from someone else's perspective. And um, I'm going to skip a little bit, but I, I close just quoting Samuel Chambers. Samuel Chambers was 13 in 1844 when he was baptized. He was enslaved at age 13, and he's baptized. There's no organized branch anywhere around him. He continues to be a one-person congregation nursing a spark of faith. He's enslaved and can't gather with the Latter-day Saints. He waits 20 years until the Civil War ends and he survives and then saves up money for five years to be able to gather to the Great Basin. And he arrives with his wife, Amanda, in 1870. Can you imagine being baptized at age 13 and whatever it was that ident you identified with this faith, you, you, you nursed that without any nourishment, without any Book of Mormon, without any missionaries, and are so convinced that after the Civil War ends and you gain your freedom, you're going to save your money for five years to be able to immigrate to Salt Lake? He becomes an unordained deacon in the Salt Lake Eighth Ward. 
remarkably, uh, the deacons in the 19th century are adults, right? And they take care of meeting houses and uh, they have monthly meetings. And there's actually a clerk <laughs> in this stake who records the testimonies at those monthly deacon meetings. And so we have Samuel Chambers' words. And he continue, continuously exhorts his fellow deacons. Um, you know, he says, some people say it's small to be a deacon. I say there's nothing small in the kingdom of God. A formerly enslaved man, an unordained deacon, going to deacon's quorum meeting, participating, and constantly reminding and urging for unity. And um, I closed the book um, with Samuel Chambers. And what I'm trying to suggest here, Richard, is just like this is my answer to your question in terms of, you know, can we be can can we be inclusive? Can we include ideas, um, people, perspectives that might not match our own? And can we expand then our own perspectives by being confronted with ideas that um, maybe we hadn't considered before? That's when real learning takes place in my estimation. And it's our obligation to create those kind of safe spaces for that kind of learning to take place because I think we become closer to Christ in the process. So I'll just close with this. In 1874, the formerly enslaved man, Samuel Chambers, served in the office of deacon in the Salt Lake Eighth Ward, even though he was not ordained. His vision of a Zion society was one of unity and inclusion amid diversity, a model for the 21st century. He reminded his fellow deacons that the gospel is not only to the Gentiles, but also to the African, for I am of that race. The knowledge I received is from God, he declared. I pray that we may be as one to build up the kingdom of God, he pled, in a supplication that reverberates to the present and invites us all to join him in the work of inclusion. And I gave Samuel Chambers the final word because it's such a profound, profound um, plea from the 19th century from a formerly enslaved man who served as deacon, unordained, in the Salt Lake Eighth Ward. Um, that's the message uh, that I think can help to heal our hearts and bridge the gap between us and, you know, whatever other position that someone might have, this plea for inclusion and unity amid our diversity. That's what Zion looks like in my estimation. And um, that's the church I want to belong to, the one articulated by Samuel Chambers. Well, you brought me to tears again. For Samuel Chambers to be the concluding voice of your book, it's just beautiful. It would be unimaginable to him that this book exists, that where we are, maybe it was hoped or believed, then your ability to bring his voice as the concluding voice is deeply moving. Listeners, when I'm just act on the impressions you felt during Paul's podcast, I know um an experience doing podcasts with Black Latter-day Saints, and I remember feeling pretty uncomfortable a couple times, and I've learned to sit with that uncomfortableness. And I, in the past, I probably would say, well, that's just the spirit leaving. 
Um, and now I don't say that anymore. I try to figure out what's going on here. And often I recognize that uncomfortableness is the, is really the changes I need to make. And in this case, we're listening to Black Lottery Saints, the racism that's still present in my view and the uncomfortableness of being confronted with that. But then the work I need to do um, to help us be a more Zion-like people and the personal repentance. So if you hear things in Paul's podcast or read things in the book, um, you may feel some of those feelings. I don't feel those now, um, but I did a little bit. Just sit with that a little bit and give yourself some grace because maybe you there was no malice intended on your part. You didn't decide one day to hold views from the past that you just didn't realize we don't teach anymore, but use that as just personal repentance. And I'm not at the finish line. Don't don't think I'm at the finish line, but I'm I'm willing to learn and grow because I want to lift the burdens and help create Zion, the Zion that Samuel talked about. Um, Greenflake is somebody that um, you're probably aware of. I don't know if you made it in the book, but we may have Molly Bonner on the podcast someday to talk about Green Flake, Green Flake, an enslaved pioneer and member of the church. And Molly Bonner found press to create a movie about him that was released last year. Molly, I, if you're listening, we got to get you on the podcast to connect listeners with that, that movie you produced. Um, I read a church tweet about Black History Month, Paul, and, and you may need to go because you're commuting home. Um, and I was grateful the church tweeted about Black History Month, but the responses <laughs> discouraged me. Um, some of the responses were, well, our only label is the child of God. So why should anybody, why should we be talking about this group of people? And I don't know what the vocabulary is, but there's a, I, I just, I don't know why we do that. And I don't know if there's a, a historic, a term that you would use that some people would use to just dismiss sort of labeling people. To me, our primary label is a child of God, but we have other labels that are needed. Um, do you want to talk about why people would do that and why that's not a good thing to do? And I realize you didn't, I'm paraphrasing some of the responses, but I'm sure you're familiar with this narrative. Yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, some people see this as as a zero sum game. Um, instead of thinking expansively, sometimes we think uh, sort of a scarcity mentality, right? And um, somehow that uh, celebrating Black History Month somehow um, means that uh, other history is 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 somehow excluded it's not quite clear to me but it's sort of the zero-sum game kind of um mentality um and you know jesus christ claims all flesh as his own um and asking us to uh actually engage and be disciples of christ um like i mentioned before uh we're asked to esteem our brothers and sisters as ourselves, And if we're only thinking of our brothers and sisters as people who look like us, we're missing the point. So the call for unity and inclusion amid our diversity is a willingness to acknowledge that other people's experiences might be different from ours. And rather than getting 
defensive, actually be willing to sit and listen, like you just articulated, Richard, willing to consider that because I uh, grew up uh, with lighter skin than someone else, my life experiences might be different. And I should be willing to try to understand their life experiences and understand what their life might look like because their skin color might be darker than mine. And how did that lead them to have different experiences than I have had? And rather than become defensive, we are called to esteem our brothers and sisters as ourselves uh, and to practice virtue and holiness in doing so. Becoming defensive and pretending like um, celebrating Black History Month means somehow I'm getting left out um, isn't following that counsel. That's not being a disciple of Christ. Uh, so obviously Black History Month, uh, is, is about correcting past wrongs, um, and, uh, addressing the narratives that were largely left out of the way that we told, uh, the American story. It's, you know, largely, you know, the 1970s when, um, America confronts its loss in Vietnam, that we start to see different narratives emerging in terms of textbooks and how we tell our very own story. It's largely a triumphal narrative of white progress. Um, and then historians started to say, well, what, what, what does this triumphal narrative look like if we understand it from the perspective of African-Americans or the perspective of Native Americans or uh, Asian Americans or um, Latino, Latinas, um, or members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Look at the way that we were included or excluded from textbooks. Um, you know, a major religious tradition um, endured a state-sanctioned extermination order in Missouri in 1838. Uh, you know, so do you want your narrative included? Do you want your narrative represented? Um, then why would you uh, be upset at someone else's narrative being represented and included? Um, it's all a part of this broader story, right? And it's a way of trying to be inclusive uh, to correct past mistakes. It's not a zero-sum game. If we tell Black history, doesn't mean that we can't tell other history, too. Um, so I think it's it, it requires um, maybe um, a bit of a, a way of rethinking. Um, and I, I see it play out, like you said, in social media. And, and um, uh, the best book that, that addresses it um, and uh, the sum of us is the book that I'm trying to think of. And um, it's fantastic. It sort of deals with uh, this history in, in the 20th century. So after Brown versus Board of Education, when things uh, across the nation started to become integrated rather than segregated, uh, white um, controlled municipal governments, for example, started to cover over swimming pools. No one will be able to go swimming in public swimming pools if we have to swim with black people. So we will 
deprive our white children the opportunity of a swimming pool if it means we have to swim with black people. That's the zero-sum game that I'm talking about. Um, and you end up hurting yourself, right? You end up hurting your own white children, preventing them from having a public swimming pool. You'd rather pave it over than allow them to swim with black people. So you're willing to actually um, destroy uh, you know, opportunities for your own children rather than um, give it to everyone. So you think scarcity mentality versus abundance mentality. Hey, there's enough water for all of us to swim in and we all get to enjoy the same pool. What is that? What harm does that do? Right. Um, so I think, um, you know, the Some of Us is a fantastic book that sort of walks us through uh, the way that um, it's it's not a zero-sum game, even though it gets defined that way and plays out that way. Well, if Black people get this, what about white people, right? That's sort of the knee-jerk response that sometimes I see playing out. That's and um, it's just the exact wrong way of approaching it. Uh, have to overcome any sort of notion that there's only a certain amount of freedom to go around or a certain amount of love of Jesus Christ to go around. Um, it's endless. It's abundant. And the Book of Mormon defines the atonement of Jesus Christ as infinite. So who, what color of flesh is he unable to save? In other words, um, we have to just uh, end the zero-sum game kind of mentality, um, in my estimation. Um, listeners, I'm a real fan of historians. I haven't really noticed that about me. I'm not a historian. Um, just on a personal, I remember taking a class in the 1970s, late 70s, as a U of U student. I'm a business major, but somehow I got an American history class. It was a a black man, I maybe I can't remember his name anymore, but he taught American history at the University of Utah. And he was it's probably my colleague, uh, Dr. Ronald Coleman. That's who it is. It, that yeah. is him. And um, he just he lit a. F I learned so much. I was just drawn to him. Um, and I'm now I'm emotional again because it's been so many years since he is the only professor I can well I can remember a marketing professor. That I can remember from my experience the view of you, and I just loved his passion, and he probably helped me to understand the role of a black man, and that he's this capable, incredibly educated. Sounds like he's alive and he's a colleague. Um, uh, he's retired now, but yes, he's very much alive, and I still talk to him. He's fantastic. Yeah, a really good friend. And my older brother is a historian. He teaches at the University of Oregon. Um, Jeff Osler. He's the author of Surviving Genocide which is, I think, one of the, you're probably familiar with that book, Paul, one of the fine books about Native Americans. You mentioned that and understanding our history there. My missionary companion in England from 1980s, Darren Perry. Um, you would know Darren, who um, works, is a Shoshone Native American and talks about um, his experience and brings voice to that. And and so I, I love, and my favorite historian that I see on the TV, I kind of a crush on her, Paul, is Doris Kearns Goodwin. I actually Googled her age. I was curious how old she is. She's in her 80s, but whenever she comes on cable TV, 
I love her historical perspective as a presidential historian. And listeners, I think historians have a real role to reduce the divisiveness because they can take us back to historical lessons and things that we've learned that perhaps we don't need to make the same mistakes again. Um, And understanding the history of Black Latter-day Saints, Black Americans, Native Americans, I think helps us understand how we can do better Um, and helps us as we are aware of these stories. I think it helps us atone and want to do better. So that's a plug for historians in general and their role in our community. And all of you that are current historians or thinking that as a career path, you contribute quite a bit to our community, and I'm grateful for your work. Um, in the show notes, listeners will link to this book. We'll link to the database that we've talked about. We'll link to Paul's prior episode, 278, if you want to link to that. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners, Paul, before we sign off? Uh, no, I mean, it's been a real honor, uh, Richard. And um, I, sh- I should have said this earlier when you mentioned Molly. I um, completely endorse, you know, bring Molly on. He's fantastic. Um would be a fantastic guest on your show and a really um, wonderful, uh, you know, um, Latter-day Saint and in his devotion and and also trying to bring about change in terms of the way that we understand uh, Latter-day Saint racial past. He's he's fantastic, but it's been a real honor to talk with you again, Richard. I really um, love the work that you do. Mm-hmm.